0: Welcome to the Being Human Podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world, and other times, like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hi,
1: and welcome to the Being Human podcast. My name is Dr. Chwasa Kning, and this week I'm joined by Professor Stephen Hayes, the creator and co-developer of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, ACT. Today we'll be talking about what it means to accept or make room for unpleasant thoughts, feelings, and events that are normal parts of life, and how from an ACT perspective, we can develop a fulfilling and meaningful life. Stephen is a foundation professor of psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno, and is the author of 46 books, including Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, and his new book, A Liberated Mind. He is an expert on the importance of acceptance, mindfulness, and values. Welcome to the show, Stephen.
2: I'm very glad to be here with you.
1: So ACT has been growing as a popular therapy model over the past 20 years. It was more of a fringe model, but now it's really mainstream. And especially in Malaysia, it is becoming quite popular. So for our listeners, can you give a brief overview of what acceptance and commitments therapy looks like and how does it work?
2: Well, we actually know a lot about how it works. It works by increasing psychological flexibility which is the ability to notice your thoughts, open up to your own feelings, memories, sensations, come into the present moment consciously inside and out, focus on what you really care about and get your life linked to those values and purposes. And those six things take your life if it's headed in a negative direction and turns it into a positive direction and all the traditional mental health areas, but also the behavioral health areas, stepping up to the challenges of physical disease or diet or exercise or things of that kind. And increasingly we're finding that it is helpful also in things like dealing with prejudice and stigma and social problems and uh, some odd things like being able to organize your business or even be successful at sports. And it's not because it's one size fits all, it's because these processes, these things we do, that your mind may tell you to do uh, and mishandle opportunity, you can, through science, learn how to handle it differently and open up the door to human prosperity. So that's uh, what ACT is about, trying to dig down to the smallest set of change processes that do the most good in the most areas.
1: What would you say these, you know, is there like one small thing that actually works, or is there several small change processes that are important?
2: Well, there's six that I've mentioned there, and it turns out they all hang out together, and you can see why. Let's say, let's just take the one of values. Uh, by values, I don't mean goals, I mean the deep sense of intrinsic purpose that you can put into being and doing, the qualities of action. The, you know, a way to think about this, if you think of your heroes, the people who really moved you, the people who uh, you deeply respect, you don't deeply respect them because of the car they drive or how big their bank account is or because of the makeup they wear or the house they live in. It's something about what they stood for, how they are as people. Those qualities, values, you can put into your own life. But when you do that, very often you're very close to places where you can be hurt. Let's say, for example, you really want intimacy and love and commitment in your life. Yeah, but we've all experienced betrayals. We've all been rejected. We know how deeply the knife wounds an open heart. And the problem-solving mind says, no, no, don't do that. You'll, you'll be vulnerable. And yes, you will, but you'll be vulnerable as part of a values-based journey. So you have to learn how to safely open your heart in order to love fully, for example. So there's two of the six. Emotional openness empowers the value of building a loving lifestyle. But there's six, and they all work together just like those two. They're like six sides of a box. If you take any box and you remove one or two sides, you have a floppy box that doesn't hold very much. If you move two or three more, it's not a box at all. And in the same way, each of these processes is distinct, like sides of a box, but they're all interrelated and they all support each other. So that's what we try to do in ACT, is give people a way of peeling this onion, of taking this one-step-at-a-time approach to dig deeper and deeper into what you really want and to build the psychological flexibility skills that allow you to get that.
1: I like that model because it's saying that we can't emphasize or focus only on one side. And one of the six facets of um, the ACT model is acceptance. Yeah. Explain a little bit more about what acceptance means. And this is something that I've personally struggled with a lot from this model. Uh, you know, when I was depressed, this idea of, when people would say, this is something you have to accept, I really struggled with that as in, I don't want to accept my depression, I, or I don't want to ex- accept suffering because it made me feel more hopeless and made me feel like, you know, this is going to be the rest of my life. So it, is, that, is that what acceptance mean in in the ACT model?
2: No, it means something different. And part of what's going on there is that your mind is saying, no, I can't have this. But the this you're talking about isn't just the pain, it's the suffering. And those are two different concepts. Suffering is optional, pain is not. You know, life is going to include loss, it's going to include death, it's going to include failures, That that's not optional. But suffering comes from this process of rejecting, running away from, hiding, playing it small. And that sort of amplifies pain into something that limits your life. And so you have to have other skills to be able to use acceptance the way people mean it, which is basically what you mean is emotional flexibility and openness. And inside what we call depression, which is really what you feel when you're trying not to feel other things, there are things in there. There may be guilt. There may be anger. There may be sadness. And if you walk into each of those, those are not your enemy. Those are are actually guides. And if you can receive the gift that's offered, which is the Latin root of acceptance is to receive. And, and in English, it's there only just a little bit, like when you give a precious gift to somebody, where you really want to honor them and you say, here, will you accept this? That's the spirit by which we mean acceptance. We don't mean tolerance, resignation, putting up with it. We don't mean fatalism. All those things predict either neutral or bad outcomes. But emotional openness, being willing to feel, and moving from what your mind says, which you, you can only live a deep and vital life when you feel good, and instead say, no, you can do it when you learn how to feel good. That allows you to, you know, weep at a wedding, to cry when a friend dies, to feel anger when uh, oppressed people are being oppressed. You know, these so-called negative emotions. Can you name any negative emotion? I'm not sure depression is really emotion. It's a very complex set of things, but inside it are very difficult emotions. Can you name any negative so-called emotion that in some times and places isn't just not only good, but essential? And by the way, you can't name one that we don't pay good money to produce. So, you know, by our very capitalist practices. We know you go to those scary uh, roller coaster rides. You go to the horror movies, you buy the tearjerker novels, you know, you watch uh, humorous television shows that produce uh, excruciating sense of embarrassment as the characters uh, do foolish things. I mean, there is not an emotion that you can name that you don't pay good money to produce. And there's a reason for that because our emotions are helpful to us. And when you look at what happens to life trajectories when we have limited range of emotions, limited ability to feel the emotions we feel, all of those life trajectories go negative. When you don't know what emotions you're feeling, alexithymia is the technical word, when you can't name and share with others how you're feeling. So, you know, in the modern world, we've given lots of uh, chemical and other ways of distracting from emotions and I think we need a little more training, including in our schools and certainly with our children, of learning how to deal with small amounts of distress, difficult emotions, and so forth, and put them into a meaningful context. You know, if, if your child has a pet that dies, do a burial ritual. Talk about what that pet rabbit meant or that pet dog or cat. Uh, you know, take the time to feel And that's, if you want something that's an antidepressant, that's an antidepressant. And it isn't the only thing in the ACT model, but it's an example. So we don't mean acceptance. Like here, you just have to accept this, and like throwing people in the deep end of the pool and asking them to swim, mixing a metaphor. But we mean something that's kinder, more self-compassionate, this kind of self-kindness. What you would do, after all, I mean, if if you had a child who was, in pain or sad or angry, you'd probably sit with them and help them, oh, what's going on? Well, do that to yourself. And that's what we mean by acceptance.
1: I imagine that one of the reasons why, you know, dealing with emotions is difficult, because it's almost like there's a sense of uncertainty or that it's out of our control. When I pay money to see a horror movie and get scared, it's an illusion of control, but I feel yeah. like, okay, this is in a box, you know, I'm only going to feel fear within this very specific situation. But in real life, as you said, you know, we do feel this whole range of emotions and it seems outside of our control and especially in, in the Asian culture where control is really important. I imagine that that's one of the reasons why people don't like it. So in, in this situation, what, what would you say acceptance would be?
2: Well, if I gave you the choice of controlling your life or controlling your emotions, and you can only have one, uh, which would you choose? So there's oh. a, I think that's an easy choice, isn't it? I mean, if, if, you, if you get into controlling emotions, you not only want to avoid bad ones and only have the good ones, you want to hold on to only the good ones. And we have measures of uh, emotional attachment that act just like emotional avoidance. They're just as toxic. If you want an example of that, I, I hope it doesn't feel uh, pejorative, but you know, in drug culture, you, you call a dose of uh, an addictive drug, you call it a fix. I need my fix. Well, it has two connotations, one fixing like repairing, And it will do that. But the other thing is it will fix like holding it in place, like a butterfly that's fixed to a cork board because it has a pin put through it. You can try to fix joy in place. And in fact, addictive drugs will do that. But the journey is anything but happy. The lives that come out of that are anything but joyful and meaningful. And why? Because... Life naturally has an ebb and flow. There's a time for these things. There are seasons, you know, that life and death, connection and loss, that's part of it. It's the rich soup of life. And just knowing that our moments are finite, they won't last forever, is part of what makes them so precious, that makes us focus and asks us or invites us not to be lazy, but to wake up because we're not going to live this moment again, this moment is this moment, and then it's gone. So savor it, connect with it. So the present moment focus that's in the mindfulness traditions and in the act becomes critical and, and important there. So, you know, I think the mind grasps at acceptance, meaning, you know, meaning that if you did that, you would lose control. But in fact, the life history is exact opposite. You know, it's like chasing a butterfly. You'll never catch it. But if you hold out your hand, it might light on your hand. In the same way, have you ever been in early dating, let's say, with somebody who's so desperate for love that at the first date or the second date, they're talking about marriage and they're talking about their dreams and maybe you're the one. And, you know, most people just want to run the other way. It's an example, you know, grasping is actually counterproductive. So who knows? What would it be like if it was okay to be you? If it's okay to be you with your history, and your history includes sadness in this moment, what would happen if you opened up to that sadness, even though your mind says it'll stay forever and you'll be overwhelmed? Is that actually what happens? And, and most people's experience it, and it's not what happens. The sadness comes, you experience it, the sadness flows away, your eyes open, you see other things of importance, you move towards them. You speak, you relate, you live, you love. So I think this vision of acceptance, meaning you're gonna to have to wallow in misery, is the frightening image that the mind gives us, but not the real image that our lives give us. But not just that, but that science gives us. Because like if you wanna predict Long-term chronic depression, you just want to predict that. Avoidance of emotions is one of the best predictors on the planet, and it correlates uh, way up there. It's one of the powerful ones, the way we talk about this in the science side of things. So maybe the mind doesn't know everything. After all, the mind is the one that told you to do all the things that got you in trouble in the first place. There's a little joke goes, uh, you know, I used to think my mind was my most important organ until I realized which organ was telling me that. (laughs)
1: Um, It really reminds me of a paper uh, that came up from the self determination theory tradition. And it talked about how the pursuit of happiness or uh, hedonism actually. It has the opposite effect you know that if we focus so much on pursuing happiness or positive emotion as you said it leads to negative emotion rather than fulfilling our needs for autonomy and competence and and relatedness which is much more satisfying um, but and, and it's not directly linked to you know moment to moment happiness but in the long term you know, there's this greater well-being and this greater meaning of life.
2: Well, if on your podcast you've had self-determination theorists in the past, you know, I really like that work. Rich Ryan is a bit of a hero. And um, and in fact, it's in the ACT model, not because we meant to put it there, but we discovered it was there because that belonging is linked to this deeper sense of self we're trying to establish. And the mismanagement of belonging i think comes from this conceptualized self this ego-based clown suit that we put on that's either good or bad but in either case it's a clown suit Mm -hmm. competence you know is really a matter of values based action and autonomy is a matter of being able to choose what it is that's of importance for you so those are three of the six flexibility processes we would want to add coherence And feeling and orientation, those are the three that come from the other processes and the flexibility model of being, and it is true. I mean, if you've ever watched a baby, a baby wants to feel, man, it's putting things in its mouth, it's tasting, it's looking, it'll work hard just for sensory knowledge and stimulation. Coherence, you know, we want to understand, we want to be able to figure things out when you rein in the logical mind and find a way to be more functionally coherent. That's a tricky thing and takes a little discussion. But And then orientation. We want to know where we are. And um, that can devolve into rumination and worry. Where did it come from? Why is it like this? Where is it going to go? But in the act work, orientation goes to being oriented to the present inside and out. So that basic idea that's in self-determination theory, that there's human yearnings, they call them needs, that we come into the world with, or that are built early on, and that it's important to see how are they really satisfied, not just what your mind tells you. you know, your mind tells you that, you know, when you have all the money and you have all the fame, you know, then you'll be happy. And if you're doing that to try to self-soothe and avoid, it's a train wreck. Nothing wrong with money, but money for the wrong ends is a mockery of you, and you know it. So um, let's give people the tools they need to reach those uh, goals or or qualities or needs that are in self-determination theory. And I just want to add a few more to open up to the capacity to feel, be oriented, and to make sense of the world.
1: I'm so glad we have that in common. I love SDT as well. And I actually got into SDT work trying to prove it wrong. I was like, no, Asians don't want autonomy. <laughs> they want control. But that, yeah. So all my research proved um, my own hypothesis wrong. Um, moving to this idea of ACT being present-centered, and future-focused, what does ACT do with someone with um, childhood issues or, or trauma from the past? Would that be diff- a different approach from how someone would practice um, psychodynamic therapy or even emotion-focused therapy?
2: It would probably overlap with emotion-focused and to some wings of, you know, more uh, psychodynamic theory and some of the mentalization, Peter Fonaghi, the things like that, relational analytic work, if you know that. But the part of the past that we're interested in is not the dead past, but the past that's in the present. And it's a dynamic thing. In our common language, we think of the past as fixed. But it's not true. Every time we remember, that memory is slightly changed and it's changed also what its function or role is in your life. And that's something that's happening right here and now. That's not in the past, that's in, in the now. We call it a memory about the past, but it's in the now. And so, you know, take something like trauma where a really painful and difficult memory and experience is projected into the present in such a way that the mind is telling you, you have to be unwilling to experience that uh, in order to survive. You need to protect yourself from your own memories. Uh, that I think that's what trauma is. It's the combination of these very, very painful events, plus the difficulty of walking through them and integrating them into a positive life trajectory. But you probably know that if you take a potentially trauma-inducing event, let's say there's a horrible, horrible uh, tsunami or a, a, you know, a storm or a, 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 an earthquake or a building collapses or a war or, well, you know quite a number of persons will develop trauma, PTSD out of that. An equally large number of persons will show post-traumatic growth without any psychotherapy. And there's differences in how these things are being handled. And it turns out you can bring some of the things. Uh, If I can give you an example, um, getting a cancer diagnosis and then walking through cancer and then saying, okay, now the cancer has gone away. Yeah, but 65% of the people who've had a high-stage cancer diagnosis develop anxiety disorders. And it turns out if you just help people have a bump, you know, some people already and more can quickly be trained to focus on things like, well, what does this mean for me? And, and what you find that people on the other side of that cancer diagnosis will say things like I've learned not to sweat the small stuff. I've learned that my family matters. I've learned that, you know, my spiritual practices are critical to me. I've learned that, compassion and community and contribution and charity is something that is not optional for me. It brings meaning into my life. You know, and each person may be different based on that autonomy piece that you were talking about from self-determination theory, based on the person's values, choices. But uh, I'm not saying this to minimize and please don't hear me to say, oh, you should just, uh, if you have trauma, you should just, you know, snap out of it. And I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying, Inside, even something that horrific, are the seeds of something that's positive. If you're traumatized because you're abused, it may include the seeds of doing something about abuse. I mean, you look at the Me Too movement. Look at what's going on with anti-racism. Look at what people are thinking about in terms of immigration. You know, we're in a worldwide cultural conversation of what does it mean to be human on this planet, in a world in which I can see suffering in real time anywhere in the world. And I can't say, oh, that's somebody else. That's, that's not us. The us is all of us. And so, you know, we're exposed to these potentially trauma inducing events, these life challenges. We need to have modern minds for that modern world that will help us channel that pain into a positive direction in the same way that, in the U.S., there's an organization called Mothers Against Drunk Driving it has a, had a huge impact on reducing drunk driving. Who did it? The mothers who lost their children because drunk drivers killed them. Yeah? But that pain turned into something that is saving thousands of lives. This is all around us. Just look around. It's happening right now. People are transforming pain into contribution. and Could we as mental health, behavioral health people, help normal folks find the move to pivot that energy that could either crush you or empower you and leave the world a better place in part because you know something about pain and you know you respectfully decline the mind's invitation to wallow, to avoid, to run away or to uh, roll into self-pity
1: so it's not so much that we ignore the past as a whole, but there, there are certain I guess bits of our past which are more important to us. And it's then it's when we look at the past, it's not just focusing on the negative parts, right? It's not yeah. just looking at look at the pain and look at the suffering, but it's also looking at what could come out of that difficult experience.
2: Yeah. And I, I think you will find the things that you deeply care about the ones that really touch your heart are linked to places where you've been wounded and where you know you could be hurt. And so our past includes hurts that will inform the path that we want to be on. And if you allow it, you know, pain can lead to purpose. Uh, I have a TEDx talk, if people are interested in seeing it, that walks through some of my own autobiographical work, but also a little bit about the principles of psychological flexibility and how to turn pain into purpose. But, you know, we're just discovering what people have been doing from, from the beginning. You think of our spiritual leaders, for example, had really painful lives and in a moment transformed that into a different direction. You know, the the Buddha, for example, Christ, for another example. I mean, if you just walk through who our spiritual heroes are, the Nelson Mandela's of the world our heroes right here, right now. John Lewis in the U.S. just died, but he's a a hero to our country for standing up for the rights of the downtrodden and was beaten almost until death by racists and never turned that into hate he found a way to turn it into love. There's a way to take the past and bring it into the present and transform it.
1: Could we say then it's act would be past informed, present centered future focus.
2: Yeah. I like it. I like it a lot.
1: Yeah. I'll trademark that. No, it's okay. Good. Um, Good. yeah,
2: that's a so catchy. <laughs> put,
1: put, put it part of it. That's the next title. All, All we, we need is, is an acronym. Yeah, no, that's right. It's, well, right now it's PPF. It's not. We'll work at it. We'll work at it. Okay. Um, so one of the things, yeah. Let me go back to values because you were very clear to differentiate values from goals, right? Yes. And what what would you see the difference? Like, why does Act focus on values rather than what we want to achieve? Especially in this Asian society, it's all about goal setting, right? The smart yeah. goals we got to do. Yeah, the smart, smart goals. goals. Well, we've
2: done the research on it, and actually it turns out goal setting alone doesn't change your behavior as much. That's one. doesn't uplift you as much. That's an empirical fact. But the other thing is this. You know, goals are fine if they're all part of a values-based journey. But if they're a substitute for thinking through values, you kind of almost fear goal accomplishment. This happens all the time. I mean, I'm an academic. I'm training doctoral level people, by the time I retire, I will have trained more than 57 people who've got their PhDs under me. And, you know, I warn them, be careful, because when you get that certificate, you're not going to feel any smarter. You're not going to feel more confident. All you'll have is a certificate that will show that you've been educated. And what will that allow you to do? I don't know. What do you want to do with it? And you know you get post-degree depression, post-marriage depression, postpartum depression all the time because people kind of forget almost. And it's not simple. It's not just that. I mean, put it in a simplistic form. But you almost forget what the journey is about, and then you reach your goal. Better to be motivated by something that will never be finished. So values are qualities of action, qualities of being and doing that can never be achieved, but can only be instantiated, can be shown. So you can lovingly interact with others, but that doesn't mean that you have it like a stone in a box. You can't say, okay, I've done love, now time to hurt people. You know That doesn't make any sense. You could say, uh, I've wanted millions of dollars, now I have it, and I'm not gonna work anymore for money. That would make sense. So goals have a beginning and an end, and they're concrete and can be achieved. Values are like adverbs. They're like qualities, like lovingly, genuinely, mindfully, consciously, um, planfully, artistically. They have that Lee or or equivalent of it uh, that allows your life's moments to reveal something. Why is that important? Well, for one thing, it doesn't go away. For, it can never be satisfied. It can never be finished. When are you done loving? If you've been on a loving journey, the answer is never. That's kind of cool to have something like that. You know, you know, if you're motivated by food, you stuff yourself and then you're not motivated. You're motivated by love, you have a lot of it and you still want more. So it carries us forward and orients us like a lighthouse in the distance. We never achieve it. We never have it. We never grasp it. We can never. Be finished or put it in a box. But along the way, we can have goals. So, for example, that degree that you got to become a psychologist might be about uh, compassionately helping people who are suffering. Well, that's awesome. How are you going to use the degree to do that? Well, that's a problem-solving issue. Your mind will help with that and, and, and your values will motivate you and carry you forward. So. Empirically, what we found is if you combine goal setting and values, you get more behavioral activation, people work harder and longer, and they're happier in, with the results. If you deceive people into thinking you'll be a whole person, you'll be okay about yourself, you'll be uh, have peace of mind, or you will stop having self-doubts when you accomplish this goal, it's a train wreck. You look at something like money. So many people motivated by money. And when I have it, I'll feel confident and people will want to be with me. And it predicts suicide. Look at the data. You know, these kind of material things will abandon you when you most want them. The applause, the fame, the beauty, it'll all abandon you. Your values will not. Not define the way we're talking about. So, you know, your mom knew something I bet you your your mama talked about your values and she knew something that maybe I'm speaking a little glibly, could be dad too, but you know what I'm saying. Our cultural traditions contain within them ways of putting our lives on a values-based journey, our spiritual and wisdom traditions. And we stripped a lot of that away in the modern world and replaced it with commercial culture uh, to our detriment. And you just have to look at our young people and you can see it. Because they're more than a standard deviation, more depressed, anxious, and stressed. And, um, you know, just looking at Instagram posts and yearning for more likes on your Facebook uh, feed is not going to be so satisfying to you over the long run.
1: It reminds me, again, to bring in self-determination theory, the book that um, D.C. Ryan wrote, The Why Are You Doing What You're Doing? You know, And just the doing itself, we can get so caught up in it. And as you said, it's, sometimes we don't even know what we're trying to satisfy and what we're trying to fulfill. It's so temporal, it's so fleeting. But when you have the, and the understanding of the why of understanding of who you are uh, as an individual um, and what actually matters to you, you'll be able to then pursue goals that are in line with your values, but not be defined by the goals that you pursue.
2: Exactly right. Exactly right. And I think the data, if you look at that view of human motivation versus this more external, gimme, 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 you know, transactional, commercial, I could say capitalistic, I mean, not against capitalism, but you know what I mean, that commercial culture, uh, if you just look at the data, uh, does not give the goods, it doesn't produce happiness. But a values-based journey does. It predicts not just happiness, but it predicts also your ability to contribute, to care, to love, to care for, you know, to, to do things in the world that are helpful. And our heroes, our cultural heroes, the Mandela's of the world and so forth are, are heroes because of their values. If you think of a hero or a heroine that you have, slow it down, look at it, you just picked somebody who's showing values that you would like to put in your life. Okay, great. Now that you know that, let's figure out how we can do that.
1: You preempted my last question, which was exactly that. Um, Because we were talking about, it is really hard for for us to proactively live our lives through one one of the the concepts called committed action. And so for our listeners, I was wondering whether you could share any insights to how they could very practically motivate themselves towards something they would like to experience or achieve. And I guess here would be identifying your values.
2: Yeah, that's critical. I mean, committed action is a commitment to larger and larger patterns of values based action. And that's what the commitment is. I and mean, if you think of a marital commitment, let's say if you go to a marriage ceremony and if, if in your particular cultural tradition, there's an exchange of vows, you know, what are the words that people are saying? And, and what they're saying is what their values are in this relationship. What they're committing to is to build larger and larger patterns of action that are built around that, even when it's hard. You know, the classic kind of Western-style vows of, you know, through sickness and in health and richer and poorer. In other words, regardless of the context, regardless of the situation, I will hold you, honor you, love you, respect you, and I will be there for you. Uh, You know, well, that's a quality that you can put into your life as you relate to other people, including your intimate relationships where you make commitments like that. And so uh, committed action, you get to use all of what science and our best cultural traditions give us about how to produce behavior change incrementally, one step at a time, creating habits, you know, measuring, you know, feedback, monitoring, smart goals, all of that, but harness that to values. and Now you have an engine of change disconnected from uh, values and all you've got is, you know, neurotic energy and people will work, work, work. Uh, but then often they will hit a point where they realize there's something empty, something missing. Yes. You're the, you know, the manager or yes, you're the headliner or yes, you're the, full professors, or, but what does that mean? I mean, every single day, a person with everything, the trophy house, the trophy spouse, takes their own life voluntarily. Every single day on this planet, billionaires check out by their own hand, or certainly millionaires, and you know, so having everything can mean having nothing, but if you connect your commitments to your values and one step at a time you're making progress, People don't uh, exit the planet by their own hand when they're doing that. They don't uh, wallow in misery. They're they're doing something, and you can feel the progress. You can notice the the importance that's there by choice, not as a heavy burden, but as a lighthouse in the distance. So commitment is important, and building positive habits are important. But you got to. Harness that cart
1: to the right horse. And so it's like creating almost a, a cohesive and integrative experience, if I understand it correctly. I imagine that some people might have some difficulty identifying values. So I was wondering if you could, you know, if I was someone um, sure. who said, um, you know, one of my values is, I mean, this was something I've heard of, uh, quite often, would be to be rich. Yes. So that, that's my value to be rich. And, and how would you guide me through that to discover? Well,
2: that's, those aren't values as we mean it. There's no quality of behavior called rich. You don't richly behave. You know, mm. rich is a, a product of behavior, that, or it may just be given to you for no reason other than your family uh, of origin. But if you ask people, well, what will you do when you're rich? What do you hope will happen? You know, sometimes people hope hope that they'll self-soothe, they'll be respected, etc. But often there is something in there that I'll be able to help others or I'll be able to make a difference in the world. But in order to have a values conversation, you have to build the other sides of this box, You have to be able to open your heart, step back from your chattering, problem-solving mind, come into the present consciously. If you can't do those things, you can't afford to care in this rich and vulnerable way that values ask you to care. So you will respectfully decline uh, uh, to know your values as long as you're running away from uh, from pain or you're entangled in your self-judgments or unable to be here in the present consciously. If we can get those things in place, then there's four basic ways I know of into values, four ways to know them. One is take what's most painful, flip it over, and look and see what does that suggest you care about. You know, I've never met a person who has social anxiety disorders who doesn't want to be with people in a way that's connected and loving. I just haven't met that person yet. And that's precisely why or part of why the social anxiety is so painful. I've not met people who are depressed, who don't yearn to feel fully and without needless defense, and to be able to live and contribute in a way that's vital and connected. So that's one. Pain, flip it over, find purpose. Here's another one. What are your really sweet moments in the domain? Think of uh, if anything that you care about, whether it's relationships or work or family, and think of some of the sweetest moments you've ever experienced that really just touch you so deeply. Slow it down. Look at the qualities of what was in that moment, and you're gonna find values in there. You'll find love in there. You'll find genuineness in there. You'll find caring, you'll find things. A third way is one I mentioned. Who are your heroes and guides? Who are the people you look up to? And almost always when you, you pick somebody who would be a powerful guide for you in a domain or who you really respect and honor and revere and look up to in a domain, they have values in those domains that you want to put in your life. And the fourth one is if it was really up to you and you're writing your story And you couldn't pick the characters, and you couldn't pick the challenges, but you can pick the theme. What kind of a story are you going to write in this next day, in this chapter of your your life? And so authorship, you know, genuinely authoring, authentically authoring your life. When you realize that you're the one who's writing the theme. You're not the one who's picking the characters and the incidents. You might get a phone call 20 minutes from now saying you had a cancer diagnosis or a friend was run over by a truck. I mean, you don't know that. But you can pick whether or not you're writing a tragedy or you're writing a hero's journey. And a hero's journey means facing the dark night of the soul, having all those thoughts that you're not up to it, why me? I can't be the one. I mean, just think about it. The Lord of the Rings. I mean, the the Star Wars. All the big stories. All you know, Beowulf. They always have that quality. And then we find the resources within, with a different sense of self. We connect with allies without who lift us up in community. We focus on what's important. We take charge against the sea of troubles. And we find a way to find the golden fleece, to defeat Darth Vader, to throw the emperor into the pit, to put the ring into the crack of doom. And then life comes back to normal. Well, the reason why we love those stories is that's our story. You're writing that story right now, you know, smaller way. But, you know, you don't go into podcasting saying, I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be the best. I know how to do it without any preparation. I'm just going to know you have to learn. You have to prepare. You have to try. You're going to stumble. You're going to stand up. You're going to try to find your listeners. You're going to, you know, you're going to walk a journey. Yeah. And that journey will challenge you. It'll stretch you at times. It'll look like it's futile. That's the hero's journey that you're on. And we're all on that. Everyone listening to me right now is on that hero's journey. And so authorship, take control of the pen and abandon control of writing the content of the sentence, but seize control of writing the theme of the chapter. And uh, those are the four ways I know. Sweet, sad, heroes, and authorship. Uh, But don't do it until you've done your work, because if you haven't done the work to open your heart to step back and notice the chattering mind and find a voice within that's more peaceful to be able to come into the present moment mindfully if, if you haven't done that well you know you may find yourself trying to do a values-based journey when the values are really dictated to you by commercial television or by instagram posts and uh, that's a train wreck that's just not going to sustain you th- through a hero's journey or any other kind of journey that you'd want to uh, have be your life.
1: Thank you for that. It's, I think my, my take home from this conversation is act is incredibly, it fits with life. You know, it's almost like you, you took away your, your structure and, and um, your mechanistic processes and what should be, and then you just uh, looked at life and then from there, you built your model to fit our experiences rather than trying to take um, our experiences and force it uh, into little neat boxes. And so I think th- the outcome of it is an incredibly rich uh, theory that there are no shortcuts. You know, there's no, you know, as you said, there's no one thing you could just tell people, okay, do this and you're going to find your values. It's not, it's none of that. It's, it's quite, ho- it's really holistic. And I think it's it's very meaningful, you know, and I really enjoy listening to.
2: Well, that's a beautiful paragraph and I'm I'm going to steal it. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Really. I mean, it's very sweet. Thank you for saying it because it's really very apt. This is right on what we're trying to do. And
1: well, the podcast is recorded, so you can steal it anytime. Good, I'll <laughs>
2: happily record it, uh, write down, I'll transcribe <laughs> it and steal you it.
1: that's transcribe it. Yeah. I'll give you credit. Yeah, that's my deep appreciation. In um, fact, you know, coming from this and go, yeah, it's really what you're doing. It's, not, it's trying to help people live life, you know, and, and just be able to live it well. You know, knowing that times there, there will be pain, you know, and there will be good times and bad times, but to not just go with the flow, because that, that suggests that we have no authorship. But, you know, I think that authorship is what, what are we going to do with the flow, you know, and exactly. how are we going to direct it?
2: Yes. And when you do these things, you create a flow around you. And you can go into a flow that's of your own making and not a mindless flow, but one where, you know, life begins to move in a direction as you ride the horse in the direction it's going as, as you really get in tune with what your heart yearns for and, and, and allow these developmental processes of connection, support, communities, growth. You know, people will help you on this journey. Your basic heart and mind will help you on this journey once you uh, learn how to get the processes to work in your favor. And that's, you know, it sounds simple, but it's really uh, uh, simple only in the sense that there's core lessons in life that are there to be learned that over and over again are relevant, but life itself is a constant process of facing new challenges, new ways that Uh, no matter how big you get, that there's more big to get. There's more growth, there's more development. So uh, I don't want to have it sound like a panacea or like you're finished. It's more like um, finding a key to the door, opening it, and then walking outside and beginning a journey. It's something like that. Maybe we don't have Mm -hmm. to live life inside these jail cells that our minds make for us and tell us that we just have to sit down and wait till it's all over.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Stephen.
2: It was really awesome. And uh, thank you so much for the conversation. I really felt uh, supported and and, uh, guided in a positive way. I hope I've served.
1: And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis. So be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live life on our own terms Take care and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.